0: Hey, what's going on? Welcome to Canucks Talk here on Sportsnet 650. Jamie Dodd, Thomas Drance. Drance, of course, Canucks insider. You can also read his work at The Athletic. Canucks Talk brought to you by Avenue Machinery and Douglas Lake Equipment. Be a champion on the worksite. Find them together online at DLEAMC.com. We are coming to you live from the Kintech studio. Kintech Footwear and Orthotics, Canada's favorite orthotics provider, supported by over 2,500 five-star Google reviews. Find your perfect fit at kintech.net. 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. The Stanley Cup final is set. It's the Vegas Golden Knights. It's the Florida Panthers. But uh, before we look ahead, and we've got a few days to do it. We've got some time to fill in that one before it gets going on Saturday. Uh, before we look ahead too much, I do want to start by talking about what we saw unfold in Dallas last night. Just like an absolute egg an embarrassing performance six nothing the stars lose to the vegas golden knights on home ice to end their season dominant performance by vegas
1: but also oh that's a tough way to go out for dallas i enjoyed it a little more than i should have (laughs) you know you know what i felt like it felt like um have you seen guardians of the galaxy the newest one? No, no. the well, first one. The first one, yes. Yeah, so you know the Dark Aster crashes into Xandar, right? Sure. <laughs> I mean, the, the details all run together in those movies, <laughs> but sure. And and Ronan the Accuser comes out, and it looks like he's triumphant. He's reached the surface of the planet. Mm-hmm. And he says, Behold, your champions of retooling. What fruits have they wrought? <laughs> oh, like, my goodness. This is it. This is your most successful retool. Oh, my goodness. This is it. This is it. A lifeless 6-0 performance. A team with $19 million committed to Ben and Sagan. And then they have no answer for the Nick Roy, Keegan Kolasar, William Carrier line. That line was stunting on them, like multiple yeah. pretty goals from a Vegas fourth line that Dallas is so poorly constructed because of their absolute shared love of shortcuts with the Vancouver Canucks, right? That you've got $19 million on Ben and Sagan, and you can't flesh out the depth, even though you, like, bridged Ottinger and Jason Robertson. Like, this team's now at risk of wasting the best draft class of the last 30 years, right? And And even with the way they've set themselves up, because they still have time to win with that group. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. But even with the way they've set themselves up, like... This was year one of Robertson's bridge, right? Or year two? Year one. He's got three more years left on the bridge. Right. So you've got to make hay right now, and like this might be their best shot. Absolutely might be. And Ottinger has two more years left on well. his bridge. Dude. And consider how well Ben played all year until this series. Do you see the Grainier tweet? No. One of the most savage dunks I've ever seen in the history of hockey Twitter. I didn't retweet it because it was too mean, <laughs> um, but I'll read it on air because it was so good. So this is Granya, whole Granya on Twitter, and uh, and she's like an old head Canucks person, and, and her tweet was, uh, Jordy Be- or sorry Jamie Ben got swept in a six game series, got a handed. to oh, him. Yeah. that's a whole new level of loser. Yep. I-, I just thought that was brilliant. But yeah, I mean this Stars team was outclassed, dubiously. As the Vegas Golden Knights unfurled an epic, epic butt kicking on their own ice sheet. Unreal. It's the kind of thing where you look
0: at it and objectively, like Dallas, relative to expectations coming into the year, had a pretty successful season. Oh, yeah. You know, they made it the game six of the conference finals. They were the third team left playing this year, but it's such an ugly way to go out and featuring your captain specifically, right, who helps you give a similarly embarrassing performance in game three, misses two games, which you win, and then comes back in the lineup and doesn't move the needle whatsoever as your team gets embarrassed on game six. It's such an easy way to go out that, like, even though you can sit here and say, well, you know what? That was a pretty good year. I don't know what the fallout is going to be in Dallas as a result of that. Like, it just seems difficult to just swallow it and, you know, okay, well, hey, we'll try it again next year because it was so profoundly embarrassing in game
1: six at the end. I mean... There's not a lot you can do with the Ben and Sagan deals. So, you know, I kind of think they're stuck in that particular, like, that's a bottleneck, right? But you've still got Robertson, and he's still affordable. You've Mm -hmm. still got Ottinger, and he's still great. And the only thing you want to change about your goaltending is have Ottinger play 10 less games Mm -hmm. next season in the regular season, right? I mean, there are rumors now flying that he was hurt in the playoffs, and it's like, yeah, no kidding. He played his 80th game. By the way, I was bringing this up, my sort of pet theories about goalie save percentage. And someone asked me, you know, is that true statistically? Do goalie save percentages regress as they play more and more? Mm. And the answer is, not really. But why? It's It's a fun one to, like, think about is it partly because only really good goalies play that many games? Only yeah. really good goalies play that and not only do you have to be really good to play that many games, but you have to be playing really well to keep getting those starts, not yeah. just in terms of winning in the playoffs, but in the regular season. So it's it's a massive one where it's like once you're at game what's your save percentage after game 70? It's like you're talking well, about only, only, only like, the elites of of are elite. playing it. Yeah. yeah. So so it's a it's um it's a classic like need to rely on common sense not data to inform this view. But Ottinger was playing his 80th game last night, and yeah, rumors he's playing hurt. No kidding. The other thing
0: with Dallas is, you know, they have Logan Stankoven, Stankoven coming, <laughs> yeah. who they're going to plug into the lineup, right? And you know, they're not going to be able to resign Wyatt Johnson. Wyatt gonna Johnson bring him will up. be another yeah. year older.
1: So they they do they're, have they're going to be good. Yeah, they're not. They're, I'm not saying that they're, they're not going to be good, but it it's worth noting that this was like a 99th percentile outcome for them this season, right? Like. Joe Pavelski continues to defy mm-hmm. gravity, common sense, all logic, every aging curve imaginable. Haskinen and Robertson had career years, at least in terms of their two-way impact. Jake Ottinger was the single best goaltender in the league, factoring in the playoffs, you know, pole to pole this season. Wyatt Johnston, you have a 20-year-old come in and play at that level, right? You you acquired Dodonov and Domi at the deadline, and they hit. Mm-hmm you know sagan and ben both bounce back like what what didn't go right for dallas this year every single Pretty thing much everything. went right for them they were even healthy and you've bridged these guys you've got this draft class in and you don't you don't not only do you not make the stanley cup final but in the conference final you fall behind 3 nothing find your footing a little bit but really clearly it's cuz vegas wasn't was willing to mess around a little bit and then finally they got sicky and absolutely swatted you like they were a fly and they were a Mack truck. Yeah, it no, was, that's it about was, as
0: it's as definitive a statement as you can get. Like six
1: nothing tells the whole story. And, th- and that's your successful retool. Even like a really fun, super successful 99th percentile outcome in the season exposes the flaws, the strategic flaws of trying to go about it this way. Um,
0: The other big part of that game for me, and you mentioned it, right, was the depth of Vegas showing out in such a big way. Because we always talk about what's the Vegas Golden Knights MO, right? It's big game hunting. They're going to go and they're going to get this star if it's on the market. And, of course, that's true. And, hey, Jack Eichel's playing really well. Mark Stone's incredible. Alex Petrangelo's incredible. That's a huge part of the story of their team. But it's really remarkable when you look at it that they've been able to do that and spend all the assets, spend all the cap space that they have, in going to land those stars, one of which, Max Pacioretty, they had to pay to give away because for salary cap reasons. And even despite all of that effort and all of that expenditure, they're still able to ice a lineup that is so deep up and down, especially, well, not even especially a forward, like both forward and defense. It was the forwards that really stole the show
1: last night. Like, that is a huge part of the story here with the Vegas Golden Knights. Well, the other funny one is, like, they kind of nail it in terms of who they give up, right? Like, Nate Schmidt goes out the door. That looks like a great decision in retrospect. Even if at the time we were like, "Hmm, I wonder, I wonder if they can afford to do that." Pietrangelo is coming off a down year. Blah blah blah. That was the right call. Pacioretty. uh, I mean, they pay huge Mm -hmm. for Pacioretty, and yet, can you tell me that Nick Suzuki would be in their top nine playing center? I don't think he would be. That's wild. (laughs) Now,
0: you could make the argument that maybe they make some different decisions, or maybe they have Chandler Stevenson on the wing or something
1: like that, right? But why would you? Yeah. Chandler Stevenson right now, like today, if you're winning trying to win a Stanley Cup final game tomorrow, Chandler Stevenson's probably the better fit in the middle than Nick Suzuki, at least with the chemistry he has with Mark Stone, right? and the way that line functions together. and the speed, like the raw speed. I mean, Nick Suzuki's like smart. He's got that devious wrist shot. From the flank, I, I mean, I'm one of those guys who's dropped like Bergeron comps on 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 Suzuki in the past. So, by no means am I casting aspersions on him. I just don't think he plays over Stevenson, Carlson, Eichel. It's really impressive. It's, it's wild. A really impressive group. And and you know, even Alex Tuck, like Alex Tuck, is unbelievable and would obviously pl- be playing in this team's top six. Mm-hmm. But when you've got Marchesau playing like this when you've got Riley Smith playing like this and when you factor in that neither of those guys would have helped you net Jack Eichel when you go out and add <laughs> Ivan Barbashev at the trade deadline no and kidding. play him on the wing and he's a perfect fit right away and you managed to create Brett Howden from a like player that I still can't believe is good into this <laughs> where it's like he's clearly good i mean it's wild they they've they've really nailed it and you know, looking at Vegas's depth and
0: the role it's playing for them, alongside the the high end talent they have, you know, because we, you and I have talked a lot about. Okay, the Canucks do have a lot of exciting young players, but they also need to add more <laughs> high end talent. Remember, do
1: you remember when Winnipeg wonked them in the first game of the playoffs? Yes, <laughs> that happened a long time ago now. A long time ago, oh, man. And did we disagree on that? Did we disagree on if that mattered and if they were in trouble? I think I probably said it did matter.
0: I'm trying to think back. I don't know. I,
1: I don't I Maybe I didn't. It. I don't did know. Did they lose I the th- first two? No.
0: No, just no, the first no. Because like, they Got won pretty handily in that one. Um, we talk a lot about how the Canucks still need to add more high-end talent, and I think that's true, but I also think like the Vegas example of what the depth is doing is really important, and I've seen some of this in the reaction to... Uh, the Milan-Lucic discussion, which has cropped up over the last couple of days, right? And <laughs> he was on Donnie we, and Dolly. We were a little bit ahead of the curve Yeah, there. he was on Donnie and Dolly today. And I know uh, and Bick were talking about it on Central last night. And, you know, I've seen a lot of people reacting along the lines of, well, they already have so many wingers, right? And that's true, but, like, let's not mistake quantity for quality here. <laughs> it's true that the Canucks have a lot of players under contract yeah. at certain positions up front. That doesn't mean you still shouldn't be trying to Upgrade the bottom six right now. We can debate the, the degree to which Milan Lucic would be an upgrade and where he would fit. And you know, okay, well, who are you moving somebody out to open up a spot for him? That's fine, but just in theory, you don't look at it and say, like, well, they've already got all these guys under contract. What are you gonna do? No, you still have to be looking and trying to create a legitimately excellent bottom six, right? And there are guys that I think can be part of that solution, you know, Phil Giuseppe if he's pushed out of the top six, I think could be a part of it. Dakota Joshua, I think could be a part of it. But I don't think, just because there's a lot of guys under contract, you don't kind of dust your hands off and say, okay, well, we've got our bottom six figured out. You're still trying to find ways to elevate that group.
1: Milan Lucic and his pending unrestricted free agency is such a gift for us. Because there are so many different angles to this. It's great, Right. And then he doesn't. He didn't tamp it down. No, he today. called it his boyhood dream. <laughs> <laughs> he should have added, it's "Thank my, you, thank you, Milan. It's my boy, boyhood dream to raise the Stanley Cup on home ice." <laughs> like you've already done that. You've bud. already done that technically. <sighs> um, okay. Now people are also sending out. Um, I saw a lot of Canucks fans, sort of Twitter dunking. On the fact that Milan Lucic in the wake. Do you remember when Milan Lucic was like that That guy tried to pick a fight with him? Yeah, and, and he was upset. It? Yeah. But he showed like amazing restraint. Like the thing about Milan Lucic is that he could have absolutely worked that guy and it would have been a very different story. Mm-hmm. And he was like absolutely 99th percentile patient in that <laughs> instance and deserves copious praise for it. And the fact that he was frustrated in public commentary. A few days later, after it became public, like yeah, and it wasn't that, it, that un, completely unfair to hold that against the him. line about whatever it is. You know,
0: you're not going to see me in downtown Vancouver again. It's not he wasn't saying like I hate Vancouver. He was saying like if if people are going to get in my face and film me and put me in weird situations, like I I am not going to put myself in that I'll, situation. I'll hang
1: out in at backyard, parties. which is a
0: very very reasonable thing to say. Like no, there that to me is such a non This idea. Like oh, he said that I about know. Vancouver. Like well, what do you expect him to do? Now
1: I do think it's worth noting that. You know, when the Canucks signed Louis Erickson, they were trying to sign two high-priced unrestricted free agent forwards. Like it wasn't Luchich. it wasn't yeah. Erickson or Lucic; they wanted both. No question about it. By the way, like absolutely one hundred percent. I was I was like dead certain they were going to sign Lucic that summer.
0: Oh like, yeah, you know, just with the the Boston oh, model and the connection between Jim Benning and Boston, right? But they met
1: with him. He picked Edmonton. Now. The history of it is funny because of the Stanley Cup, because of all the, you know, the his family's church got defaced in this market. There was that incident downtown. Like there were moments where the relationship was super complicated because of the toxicity stemming from 2011. Uh, and by and by toxicity, I want to I want to mention like all of it from the side of Canucks fans, at least as it regards Milan Lucic. Then, you know, uh, the fact that he was courted so heavily by the team. Mm-hmm. Right, team tried to trade for him in the in the Martin Jones deal like that was a deal that the Canucks were in on mm-hmm. ends up going to LA Canucks court him he chooses to go to Edmonton quickly becomes a bad contract place for every other western canadian team yep. instead of his hometown team now he's an unrestricted free agent and he's likely to be pretty inexpensive i would think so yeah that that's a huge part of it right cuz i also i also saw
0: people reacting like we have too many overpaid wingers like he's not going to be overpaid he's going to yeah. be cheap first of all
1: i think he was blessed that he chose not to come to vancouver I think there was a real window. Like, if, you, if Milan Lucic, given how intelligent he is, how much he pays attention, both to media but also to watching games, given the fact that he's from here, given the fact mm-hmm. that he was a member of the Boston Bruins, so was Ericsson, but Ericsson didn't have a ring right. from it. He didn't have a ring in specifically 2011 from it. Um, like, I think there was a real chance that if Messier had signed, or sorry, Messier had signed here, he would have been this generation's Messier. Like, he really would have been the analogy. Louis Erickson was almost, we were almost able to, like, forget about it, and it was just a number on a cap-friendly page that, like, sort of spoke to the organization's poor decision-making. But Lucic would have been a completely different thing. This would be the right
0: time, because expectations would be reasonable. Totally. If he came in earlier, like what you're saying, it would have been it's his job to turn this around, right? And we have, he's got to score 30 goals and he's going to do this and he's got to teach Bo Horvat how to be a captain and the expectations would have been sky high. If it happens now, we all understand where Milan Lucic is in his career. Totally. So, and and the number is going to be very reasonable. could be a one-year deal, right? That kind of thing. It creates a situation where without those expectations, he can just come in and genuinely help the team. It's the right time in his career for it to happen. Now we can talk about the, can he help the team thing? That's a different conversation. Right. I, I tend to think that it's worth it because I do think the Canucks
1: Like so we can talk about it is on. It, ice. Is it worth it if it's a million and a half?
0: I would want it to be a million. Okay. That's the kind of the number for me. Right? So like,
1: so he has to truly be
0: paid as as a replacement level player, basically. Then I think it makes a ton of sense. Now the question is what's the market See, gonna be for him and all you, that?
1: If you don't think it's worth paying a guy one and a half, it's not worth paying him one. That would be my. I don't know about that. I mean, like, I, the Canucks
0: are in a situation where those $500,000 matter a lot for them, right? Like, that's the thing. Now, I, I hear what you're saying that if you think he's going to bring all of these, like, kind of intangible benefits, well, just pony up and pay him the 1.5. But, I but but, get that. I mean,
1: he's going to get 1.5 because at the end of the day, even in a worst case scenario assessment of him, like, the worst case scenario of assessment of him is at the very least, he's Ryan Reeves. He's better than that, by the way, because I still think he can be, Mm -hmm. you know, a a credible everyday bottom six guy. But, I mean, that's at the very least because of how apex predatory he still is and because of how little there is in terms of real toughness, real heavyweights in this league. In the league, yeah. He's kind of a unicorn on that respect alone. Like, that's going to create a market for him independent of the fact that, like, hey, he's still got pretty good hands and tight. Hey, he's actually a really good passer hey he actually held up and played pretty well often often in you know uh top nine minutes anyway for the Calgary Flames last year right that that, so I don't think this is like an 800k or a PTO type situation for Milan Lucic I think there's going to be more market for him than that but here's my here's my question to you Mm -hmm. you know we, we saw with the defense at the end of the season right like if you make marginal upgrades in terms of speed at three spots simultaneously, it has a huge impact on what a team looks like. Yep. Right? So you sub out uh, Oliver Ekman-Larsen and Shen, and uh, I can't remember the other guy right now for some reason, but you sub out three guys and Income. Annan and and, (laughs) Breezebois. Yeah. Just whomever. Honestly, just like kind of whomever. uh, Hirose. And it's like, oh, that group has way more speed as a unit. Like the cumulative impact of marginal improvement can be really big in hockey. And I think that's especially true up front. So in a world where instead of having this DiGiuseppe, Dakota, Joshua, Amon fourth line, you have a Lucic, Phil DiGiuseppe, Dakota, Joshua fourth line, or or whatever, pick two of those three guys. Yep. And then, you know, you also have Kuzmenko on the top line and Besser in the middle six. Are you too slow? I, I, I'm just saying you can't underestimate the impact that that loss of speed can can have on how your team looks and plays up and down the lineup just like you know the inverse if the Calgary Flames replace you know Lewis and Lucic with average skaters or better like even above average skaters like Jesper Faust replaces Lucic and i don't know x fast free agent replaces Lewis I think the difference in how the Flames look will be way yeah. bigger than you think. Like it, it really is significant, especially with team speed, how much a player or two can change the complexion of a roster. Well, and that's part of the bind the Canucks are in because they do need to get faster.
0: They also need to get bigger and tougher. It's mm-hmm. hard to do those things at the same time. Usually if a player is both fast and big and tough, guess what? They're a very expensive player. They're a hot commodity. Uh, on the free agent market or on the trade market. So you kind of have to prioritize and maybe it comes down to, well, what are the other moves they're doing in concert with that, right? Are you able to move Brock Besser? And then you feel like, okay, well, we can fit in uh, you know, a less than average or a below average skater on our fourth line. It's not necessarily the cleanest fit because of their salary cap situation, right? Because of some of their other roster considerations, but I would still be open to it, just in large part because, look, at least you're checking one of the boxes. At least you are getting a lot tougher, right? And at least you are bringing in somebody who's won before and all of those things at a potentially reasonable number, even if it's not a perfect hockey fit
1: necessarily in the bottom six. I think from a team fit perspective, though, and from a team speed perspective anyway, there is like a real opportunity for the Canucks to have, you know, uh, this sort of top six forward group that rolls out with like Beauvilliers, you know, Phil Giuseppe potentially, because I just assume that mm-hmm. he's going to play with JT Miller. Yeah. Um, Mikheyev. Mikheyev and Kuzmenko, you know, with Pedersen and Miller. And then, you know, on your third line, probably, like, Garland. You know, may- I mean, I don't know where Besser's going. But so, like, Garland and Besser, at least one of those guys still in your, mm-hmm. you know, and then whatever else you do. Um, there's at least a path to this team being relatively quick. Mm-hmm. And... I think you have to be careful with it because you can have like one Thomas Tatar, you can have one Brock Besser, you can have one, maybe two Kuzmenko types. Right. But, but if you have three, if you have like one on each line, the way it impacts how you can play as a team is massive. So for me anyway, I'd almost sort of from a team fit perspective, say like, if you're trading Besser, then I'm open to it. Yeah. If you're not, I-, I wonder if it impacts your team speed too much. If
0: you're making the upgrades to speed elsewhere, then maybe you have room for it. But I hear you. It's it's, uh, it's a tricky fit for that reason. Uh, 650, 650, lots of good texts coming in. Uh, we'll talk about this and more with our guy from The Athletic, Harmon Dial. That's coming up next. It is Canucks Talk, Sportsnet 650. Welcome back to Canucks Talk Sportsnet 650. Jamie Dodd, Thomas Drance here, live from the Kintex studio. 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. Dunbar Lumber with three stores to serve you in Ladner on Bridge Street or Dunbar Lumber Express at Ladner Center or Arbutus in Vancouver online at DunbarLumber.com. Now joining us on the phone line, he also covers the Canucks for the Athletic, our guy Harman Dial. Harm. thank you as always. How are you?
2: I'm doing great, guys. How are you?
0: Uh, we're doing well. So it's uh, it's all of a sudden the uh, a hot-button issue here in Vancouver. Milan Lucic is a UFA. Is there a fit that makes sense with the Canucks next year?
2: I don't know, to be honest. I, I'm a little bit skeptical given how Lucic looked in his last year in Calgary. I think his foot speed... Sticks out as a as a concern for me, and it just seemed like there there wasn't enough of an impact for that he was able to make on a night to night basis, and um, and certainly if you talk to any Flames fans, it felt like that was a recurring issue for them was Lucic's form, and there just wasn't enough uh, enough there. Now I understand, sure he he still brings some. Uh, toughness to the table but beyond that i i just don't know if there's enough left there especially for a canucks team that um probably needs to continue adding more speed to the lineup
1: Harmon, can lucic coexist with the current collection of wingers that vancouver has or would they need to subtract uh some average or below skaters in order to make it work
2: yeah, well I, I do think they would need to sub- subtract some, you know, some type of um, you know, other average or below average skaters, just because again, when you look at, for example, what may what makes Vegas' bottom six so effective, right? We saw it just the other night against Dallas. Um, it's how effectively they can forecheck, how quickly they close on opposing defensemen and force those defensemen to turn pucks over, sort of apply that pressure down low. Uh, I mean, even when you look at Florida's bottom six, for example, um, that's a bottom six that relies on a lot of speed as, speed as, as well. And it just feels like if you're adding Lucic into the mix, you're making your bottom six slower. And if you're adding that element in something, something else needs to, uh, needs to give not to mention, do you really want to add another sort of winger to the mix who isn't a high end penalty killer? Right, uh, that's another thing that sort of sticks sticks, sticks out in my mind as well.
1: Harmon, are there any affordable UFA's? We built lists and and traded uh, our favorite names for like defensemen and third line center targets that would probably be affordable. We kept them somewhat realistic. Is there a target for you that stands out as this market spends, you know, the the waning days of May discussing players like
2: Ryan O'Reilly and Milan Lucic? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so there are a few. I think right off the bat, I mean, I don't know if he'll price himself out of the Canucks' range, but uh, Evan Rodriguez is a player whose combination of pace uh, and skill and the versatility in, in being able to play center and wing, sort of shuttle up and down lineup. Um, you know, that's really, uh, you know, that, that's, that's really attractive. And I think the Canucks could absolutely use some of that type of talent in, um, in the middle six Beyond that, I mean, I'm curious about, I, I don't know if he's necessarily the, you know, my favorite or anything, but when you look at Sean Monahan and how he looked before he got hurt in, in Montreal, um, I thought his combination of being able to chip in with a little bit of offense, but also the steady, reliable 2 A game was, um, you know, it was pretty impressive. And And at the time before he went down with injury, people were talking about him as, Oh, could he be the type of budget option that it seemed like Colorado targets to fill in their two seat position? And and now of course when you have a situation where Monaghan has that sort of season ending season ending injury, um, he he can probably only command a, a one year deal at a at a really cheap rate to to kind of rebuild his value. And it's like, could that be the type of opportunity that ends up being um, you know, a huge bargain? Obviously there's some risk there and you'd need to sort of Probably want at least two or three op- two or three you know contingency options in case Monahan's health doesn't hold up. But he's a sort of name that um, intrigues me considering uh, considering the price point. And um, beyond that, even even at a, at a lower level, if the Canucks continue to sort of be cap strapped and can't really spend big, um, somebody like a Teddy Bluger probably in an ideal ideal situation is closer to a fourth line center. But if you don't have the cap to, you know, make a more expansive addition. Bluger's ability to kill penalties, um, his, um, his defensive acumen at five on five, the, you know, the consistent impact that he's had, especially if, you know, the drawback with a player like Bluger is he doesn't really drive any offense. He's a bit of a black hole there, but if you're able to, let's say, surround him with, um, you know, with a couple of wingers, that uh, are more offensively oriented, then you know maybe that can work as a sort of sort of stopgap sol- solution. So um, those are some of the, some intriguing names when I think about forward targets in uh, in the free agent market.
0: Yeah, and you know it's it's tough to fill the third line center position with kind of bargain options like you're describing. But you know even if they are able to move one of the the problematic salaries on the books and clear the full freight of it, you know you just look at the center UFA market and. J.T. Confort is going to be very expensive, uh, you know. Evan Rodriguez, if if you like him at center, is going to be expensive. Max Domi after his playoff run, like even if they were to trade Connor Garland or Brock Besser, I'm not sure if they'd have the cap flexibility to go after one of those higher profile targets. So I think it might have to be no matter what they do, kind of the Sean Monahans and, and Teddy Blugers of the world.
2: Absolutely, especially because you'd be buying uh, high, right? Even yeah. with a player like Eric Halla, for example, um, Halla had a really good year in New Jersey. And, you know, I, before this season, I would not have really viewed him as like a bona fide signature third line center type who I can, you know, rely on defensively. And, um, and, and yet given the year that he's had, he's going to command probably the type of price point that, uh, you know, given his age, uh, I wouldn't be the most, uh, the most comfortable paying. And, Um, that's where, you know, it it is interesting because I do think there are a lot of, you know, the, the bargain types to where you could probably, um, you know, look at, look at a few, look at a few names, even, even when you get, get down to a player like a Nick Bukestad, right. Or a right shot center. Again, none of these guys are when discussing the bargain names, none of these guys are like perfect fits in terms of like three C on a contender. But honestly, you just need a guy who can hold the fork down, especially because, like the one thing you want to be careful about is overpaying for a forward in agency or, or even on the trade market. Um, and then let's say you know in a year or two, someone like Ratu is ready, mm-hmm. and you've got this young cost control, uh, cost controlled center who like that's a player with a player like Ratu. He could be really efficient for you in the third line center role. But let's say you've already committed uh, you know big money to uh, to a player like a Comper it's like your you, you the one of the primary advantages of having a prospect like Ratu is you can go really cheap in that position but you if you've already paid for that 3C position you're kind of, you know, of course you could try then moving a player like Miller to the wing or whatever but you're not maximizing the the efficiency of of a player like Ratu so that's why i feel like in in filling the third line center role moving forward um you know you'd almost prefer them to go for these stopgap options where they're cheaper options, shorter term commitments, as opposed to giving up um, a lot in, in term and in dollars and potentially creating another inefficient contract down, down the
0: road. Yeah, that's a really interesting point, Harmon, and especially Ratu's here now and he's one of their top prospects, if not their top prospect. But even behind him, they're very thin at center. And, you know, before he arrived, they were really, really thin at center. Uh, in the prospect pipeline should they almost be looking at it you know rather than okay we're trying to find our solution at third line center for the next three four five years here we're basically we're looking for stop gaps you know guys who are can help us but are not long-term fixtures while we one develop Ratu, but then also develop and and stock up the pipeline of centers behind him in the system
2: absolutely 100 percent. i think that's the way the the team should be thinking uh, thinking about it especially because like For me, long term, your best shot at at a third line center who's going to who who can be that caliber of a player on a good team is already in your system internally in Ratu, right? And that's where his development in Abbotsford is um, is going to be instrumental. And I know the organization is pretty optimistic about like when when Ratu was initially sort of traded here. For example, there were some that wondered, okay, given his Given that he's not the fastest skater, is he going to be more of a winger as opposed to a center once he eventually hits um, and, and graduates at the NH graduates to the NHL level but um, the organization is very high on and, and very sort of adamant that they believe rot can't stick at center and they're confident that especially given some of the resources that they have in Abbotsford with McK- Mackenzie braid as a skating coach for example that they 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 think there's a lot of untapped upside in, in getting Rock to, to be quicker with his first couple of steps, which if you're confident in that ability, um, then you have to feel pretty good about him potentially filling that role in, let's say, a year or two, in which case um, there's no point of, uh, of spending big, especially because, look, the Canucks are in a situation where it's not as if this team is in cup or bust mode for next for next year. Obviously, making the playoffs is a really important priority, but it, like the team's window isn't necessarily now. Like for the Canucks to sort of get get to the point where they're actually going to be a formidable team, it's going to be a, a, you know a three, four, five year process, and you know in with that type of timeline, you don't want to sign or trade for let's say a veteran thirty one thirty or thirty one year old or, or sign that type of player who in you know maybe for next season he provides good value, but in, you know, let's say two, three, four years down the road, you're looking at that as, you know, an inefficient contract and, and how do we get rid of this this deal and and wow, we've finally gotten to a point where our team is in a position to actually um you know maybe maybe contend, but we've got another anchor on the books. It just feels like a problem for the Canucks. Um, over the last you know, handful of seasons, when you when you look at some of the players and contracts they've targeted is they've they've chased that short term instant gratification sort of answer. And in that process, um, very quickly, those deals have turned into problem contracts. So uh, that's definitely something you, you want to avoid if you're the Canucks.
1: So, Harmon, I'm going to pull up the EvolvingHockey.com contract projections tool. Now, this is a contract projections tool that estimates based on Cap Friendly's past con- uh, contractual data in addition to statistical profile, what a player will make. Last offseason, they were .82 correlation with players' actual signings, which is a very high R-squared for those nerds out there like me. All right, I'm going to read you some of the players we've talked about over the course of this hit and what their projection is and just get your reaction to it. Are you ready? Yeah. This game is going to hurt. JT Comfer, 4 times 5.7. Yikes. <laughs> Evan, Evan Rodriguez, 4.8 times 4. Yeah, 4 times
2: 8.4. I'd be shocked if you got that.
1: Max Domi, three times
2: 4.5. I th- I think that's still shooting a little bit too high, but yeah, that, those numbers hurt.
1: In unrestricted free agency, you think in, in a world where Chicago just needs bodies, you don't think some of those guys are going to get paid, Harmon?
2: I mean, maybe, but like we've been through this with... I mean, even with the recency bias of like a Max Domi sort of playing well in these playoffs... But, but you,
1: you think he's going to get significantly less than, like, Ryan Strom? I mean... Like, Domi's projection's basically in line. In fact, less term than what Ryan Strom signed for in Anaheim off the back of a decent playoff run.
2: I mean, not significantly less.
1: I just thought that's a tad high. Okay. Nick Bukestad, three times
2: 2.5. Yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't want to sign that, but I can understand a team paying that.
1: Teddy Bluger, two times
2: 1.6. Sorry, what was that, two times 1.6?
1: Now we're talking. <laughs> okay, see, so there we
2: go. That's, that's more – We're in the sweet spot in, now. connects his budget. <laughs> yeah, well, it's like, it's
1: like, unfortunately, last year's Evan Rodriguez is this year's, like, you know, like you can't get Evan Rodriguez now, I don't think. I think you have to find Danton Heinen and be like, that's next year's Evan Rodriguez. Like – that's the that's the problem with the the budget pile. So, of those deals, is Teddy Bluger the only one you'd do? Yeah. What does that tell you about how the Canucks should approach for agency? Did you learn anything from that exercise other than t- to cast aspersions at hockey, uh, evolving hockey's model?
2: Well, I th- I think it it. It ha- it doesn't fundamentally change anything about how I view them. Sort of going after bargain options, it just sort of means that you're probably, as you were kind of alluding to, the type of bargain that you're settling for is like the player is probably even slightly worse than, um, you know, maybe I maybe you would have initially imagined going into this exercise, especially you know because this is uh, a weaker free agent class. But I I just feel like. <sighs> The position the Canucks are in, I understand the the sort of desire to go out and, you know, make a splashy sort of acquisition and, and you can see in these playoffs with how important Vegas' third line has been, how important Florida's third line has been. You can sort of understand why the Canucks would be so eager to sort of upgrade the three C position. Um and they definitely need to address it in some capacity, but it just feels like Now's not the time to just push more chips in, if that makes sense. If anything, like you'll have a little bit more flexibility at the end of uh, next season when you have uh, more contracts, like Tyler Myers for example, coming off the books. And I know, obviously, uh, you know, a chunk of that, you know, a fair chunk of that will be eaten up by you know whatever raise at least Pedersen gets, whatever raise Philip Peronic gets. Um, but it just feels like now's not the summer to and to, to, to try and you know make more acquisitions it just feels like the, the club needs to be a little bit more disciplined about how they um about how they spend money and and then the last thing i want to see is them creating a, a contract that harms them in two or three years because two or three years is when i think this team can actually um look there's a road where the canucks can make the playoffs next season absolutely but in terms of them actually reaching a level beyond that. And you're looking at them as a team that could, you know, maybe be top 10 in the NHL, for example, you look at them as more than just, Oh, Oh, you know, could they squeeze into the playoffs? I still think it's a two, three year timeline, at least for them to um, really become a formidable team and actually enter a real window. And I just don't want to see, you know, any contracts that you're worried about um, in the future. And I think for next season, honestly, a lot of it has to come on the back of internal improvement for them, for them getting into the, getting into the playoffs. Like you're hoping Demko bounces back. Um, you, you're hoping for some of your younger players like Hoglander and Pod Colson to sort of take the next step. Obviously a full year of, of having Horonic on the back end to hopefully stabilize the second pair. Um, you're maybe hoping for an Oliver Ekman Larson bounce back, even if it's, let's say in a third pair capacity in a, in a lesser role and, um, and, and just having a baseline level of competence from him to me, I, I think this team has too many constraints this offseason to look at external answers as like, that, like this is going to be what pushes us over the top. I think you really have to be leaning more so on internal improvements. Another one to think of, for example, getting the version of JT Miller that we saw under Rick Talkett as opposed to what we saw in the first half of the season. I really think that the Canucks' path back into the playoffs for next season hinges on internal answers rather than, you know, a a lot of splashy external solutions.
1: Harm, you're speaking sense and and making logical sense, but you cover the Vancouver Canucks. (laughs) Do you think that this organization believes that their retool is done after next season and that they've actually already restocked the prospect pipeline with the additions of Hirose and McWard and, and company plus the player that they'll get in the first round this year. Like what if this team thinks what what if this team's in win now mode? And and if they do, wouldn't that better explain their actions, frankly, than a cautious approach to this offseason?
2: Yeah, I mean they are in, in I mean, with the tracker we've seen so far in terms of obviously re signing Miller and, and trading the pick for Heronick, like they are clearly in in a win now mode it's just to what degree and what um level like what how extreme are you in that sort of win now approach and that's where um i I just think you you can't go too far you've got to remember that this isn't one year and you're um and you're win now and you're going to be contending for a stanley cup this this is yes you're you're in a in a mode where you're trying to improve now clearly and you're not Necessarily in a mode where you're trying to collect draft picks and um, and, you're, and you're necessarily trading for prospects, but this is like if the Canucks ever want to build a sustainable Cup contender, it's going to take multiple years to do that. And yeah, I mean that is that is a sort of worry of mine. Is like how extreme are you going to get? Are you um, are you going to become too aggressive? Because look, that's been the issue that's plagued this organization for. Um, a long time especially you know during the Jim Benning regime is them sort of hit, hitting the accelerator too soon now in making the Horonic trade I think they've already made their, their their sort of big signature aggressive move I think they should they should they should look at that and try and be um, more disciplined and that's not saying do nothing this offseason right like let me be very clear when we're saying you know take a more disciplined a little bit more of a conservative approach that doesn't mean sit on your hands and um, you know, don't, uh, don't sign anybody. It just, it just means that you're going to have to um, operate within a budget. That just means you're going to have to get creative. And look, if there's one thing this or this regime has done well um, it's being able to unearth talent from, you know, from unexpected sources for cheap rates. When you look at Dakota, Joshua, Ethan bear, Nils Oman, um, you know, Andre Kuzmenko as well. So along those lines, if you're the Canucks, I think this is an offseason where you have to sort of count on that skill and leaning on, on that ability to, uh, to, find, uh, to find talent from unexpected sources. And look, it happens, right? Like, uh, we, we've brought these examples up uh, countless times where you look at, uh, you know, the Minnesota Wild um, not too long ago dis- discovering a player like Freddie Goudreau, who was an a- NHL, AHL tweener, and he was a really good middle 6 center middle for them. Right and obviously earned an extension beyond that. Um, you know, Toronto finding David Camp after he would kind of been a Chicago castaway and he wasn't really on anybody's radar aside from you, Drant, um, He he's he's been a great sort of shutdown down uh, bottom six center for them uh, for at a cheap rate. It's it's like you, it's not impossible to find bargain options, and that's what I think this uh, this organization should be uh, should be trying to do.
0: Harm, just before we let you go, I uh, can't let this go without asking about Archer Silovs, who's the, the toast of Latvia after uh, being tournament MVP, leading them to a bronze medal at the World Hockey Championships. What should the Canucks plan for Archer Silovs be next season?
2: Yeah, I think they should still be prioritizing and making sure that he plays a lot of games. Um, and part of that absolutely, in in my mind anyway, should, uh, should entail... Uh, starts in uh, in Abbotsford. Look, because of his waiver exemption, and because Abbotsford and Vancouver are so close, you can still get him NHL starts here and there, especially at uh, at home. But you have to keep in mind that over the last three years since the pandemic, Seelovs C- C- has only played uh, 76 league games, and the vast majority of those were last season. I don't think it's a coincidence that Seelovs C- took a major step in his development this past year. In a season where he played a lot of games, right? In my mind, that should reinforce it. Okay, we gotta we should make sure that he continues playing lots lots of games and um, and you know one international s- showing for me that's that's aw- awesome to see uh, the way he played it played at the worlds and it's and it's a reinforcement of the the incredible sort of talent and potential that he has. But um, I I wouldn't be I wouldn't want him in a scenario where let's say he's you know playing only twenty games behind Demko. Um, next year, I, I think this is absolutely an opportunity where you've got to flex um, the advantage of, of have, having Van, Vancouver and Abbotsford so far and, and, and having him kind of, you know, maybe shuttle a, a, up and down a little bit. And, and, you can't, and, and you don't even want to discount Spencer Martin from, from this equation nope. either, either. I think when you look at Martin's last 12 games to close out the regular season in Abbotsford, um, he was on an absolute tear. They get a 935 save percentage in the playoffs, in, in four starts, he had a 9.29 save percentage again. Um, once Martin was sent down to Abbotsford, after, I think, four so-so starts from Martin, he was probably better than Sealovs, right? So I don't think you can discount Martin's ability to make the sort of backup conversation um, interesting. And, and that's where I still think Seelov's g- getting games in Abbotsford next year should be a priority.
0: Harm, always appreciate it, man. Great insight. Thanks for doing this, and uh, we'll
1: talk again soon.
2: Thanks, guys.
0: That is Harmon Dial, who, of course, also covers the uh, Canucks at the Athletic. We
1: need a uh, segment where Harmon urges the Canucks to be cautious and disciplined, and it's called Do No Harm. (laughs) That's actually pretty good. That's
0: actually pretty good. It's not where I thought it was going, but I like it. It's very good. It's good right. Yeah, we'll, yeah it lays uh, out just the really sensible, disciplined, cautious I'll, approach yeah, yeah, I'll do get, no
1: harm. I'll get Dom on a yeah, that's pretty on good. on a little um you know, a little uh, yeah. jingle and we'll uh, we'll we'll launch it the next time we've got him on. Uh
0: very good. Meanwhile, uh this text comes in. Can I get the Harm Kool-Aid? I expect this team to trade their 2023 and 2024 first-round picks in the next 6 months. Uh we will continue the Canucks discussion, uh, talk a little bit
1: more about the Stanley Cup final I, matchup as well. I also want to talk about like Let's. I feel like it would be a fun exercise to go through, and maybe we can do this this week. Like, yeah. Let's make an assumption about the Canucks. Okay. Okay, and then extrapolate what their summer should look like from there, or what we can expect it to look like from there. So, like today, we can do it from like, if the Canucks think they're a contender, then then what is it? And look go like? through the exercise of the summer. Yeah. Feel like that's a fun. We can way do to, that next segment. Yeah. Let's fun, do it. Fun way to kill. Let's some talk time. about it. absolutely, which is what we're all
0: about here. <laughs> uh, that's coming up next. It is Canucks Talk Sportsnet 650.
2: Big opinions and good bets. It's The People Show with Big Nizar. Be sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Welcome back to Canucks Talk here on Sportsnet 650. It's Jamie Dodd. It's Thomas Drance. Canucks Talk brought to you by Avenue Machinery and Douglas Lake Equipment. Be a champion on the worksite. Find them together online at D-L-E-A-M-C.com. Coming to you live from the Kintec studio, Kintec Footwear and Orthotics, Canada's favorite orthotics provider, supported by over 2,500 five-star Google reviews. Find your perfect fit at Kintec.net. 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber Tax Line. So we just had Harmon Dial on, our our pal from The Athletic, and, uh, you know, he was talking about what his kind of preference for the Canucks off season would look like. And the need to not try not like not avoid trying to get better. Right. As he said, but just to be very cautious and be very disciplined. And I think, you know, harm was getting at something that drives me nuts. A lot of the times where sometimes we fall into this false dichotomy where every NHL team is either like the Tampa Bay lightning or the Colorado avalanche where the future means nothing. And they're all in, or, or, They're the Arizona Coyotes or the Chicago Blackhawks, and there's no space between those two poles. When in actuality, almost every team exists somewhere between between those two extreme spectrums, right? And you can be trying to improve your team without being rash, without being, you know, reckless with how you're spending your future assets. And I think that's what Harm was getting at, right? Okay, hey, yeah, it's fine to try to make the playoffs. It's fine to try to improve your team. You just have to be really smart about how you're doing it so you don't hamstring yourself down the road. Now – you made the interesting point, right? Because one of the things that's going to set the course for the Canucks offseason, what it looks like, is what exactly are their goals next year, right? Like, what are they trying to accomplish and where do they sit on that spectrum of all in for the Stanley Cup this year versus, you know, rebuilding and yada, yada, yada. So, as you said, like, okay, let's try to plan it out here, game it out what would the canucks do if we assume that we kind of turn that dial more to the tampa bay colorado end of things right and that they don't think that the goal isn't just to sneak into the playoffs but the goal is to compete the goal is to win the stanley cup next season right and they think they have a meaningful chance of doing that what would the canucks off season look like and i'll tell you the first thing that jumps to mind for me i don't know if you agree but the number one move, if you truly believed this was a team willing or capable of winning the Stanley Cup next year, right, with moves you can make this offseason, I think the number one thing you do is you buy out Oliver ekman Larson, right? Because you need that cap space to address the rest of the roster issues. That's, before before we get into trading picks or doing anything else, like, the number one thing you would do, if that's what you believed, is, trade
1: out, is buy out OEL. I think that's fair. I think that's fair, because you get almost all of that cap space back. And if you truly believe that you're a contending team Mm -hmm. that's nearing the end of a retool, right? Because I think if you believe that you're a contending team, that doesn't necessarily mean, I think, that you're completely through with making future-oriented moves... And not that the Canucks have been making future oriented moves, but they believe that these are future oriented moves. This is not an organization that sees the Philip Heronick deal mm. as, a, as a win now deal, even though it clearly is. They're an organization that believes that Philip Heronick fits within an accelerated timeline of how to win long term, right? Like fundamentally, that's what they're about here. They're going about team building just in a way that is at odds with basically how the rest of the industry sees it right like that that's it so you're not necessarily making complete like trading the 11th well, for a great player thing. i think a lot of people would think of it
0: in this in this thought experiment say if you're all in well they're going to trade the pick right because they're desperate but you can be in a situation where you recognize the value of that 11th pick right and looking at it and saying hey can they be our wyatt johnston in a couple of years right? Can right they be our uh anton lundell in a couple of years
1: or that that this retooling process we began <laughs> is almost done, mm-hmm. but isn't done yet. Until we make that pick. That,
0: that'll that be the end of it when we or, make that or, pick. or
1: we're going to make that pick, and we're going to do another run where we sign only guys who are 28 and younger in free agency. Anyone we bring in is going to be 28 and younger. And now we've opened up a three- or four-year window. Mm-hmm. Again, I, I know this is wild, but that's because it's wild to look at this roster and the success that this team has had over the past few years and assume that they're a contender. But but once you make that assumption, I think buying out OEL makes a ton of sense for sure, and yet I don't know that it's something you do necessarily without considering the long term, mm-hmm. even if you're assuming you're, you're a contender next season because of the fact that that you're a specific type of contender. You're like an early window contender as opposed to a going for it right. contender. Right, so you still do have some concern. Right? E- effectively, even though I'm stretching the bounds of credulity, I still think that there's limits to how far we can go. Uh, indeed. And
0: I will say, you know, so it does make it, it's going to be very interesting, right? If if Oliver ekman Larson is bought out, when, especially when if it happens, you know, when the first buyout window opens later in June here after the Stanley Cup final... That's going to tell us a lot, I think, about what the team's mindset is. Now, there are other reasons why you could buy out OEL, right? Because cap space, it's not just used for one thing. It can help you do a lot of different things. But just knowing generally the MO of this team, you know, they're not buying out OEL so that they can, like, take on other teams' distressed assets, right, for a payment. That's not what they're going to do. No, no, they're buying out OEL to spend spend money money on this roster right now, right? And if that happens, I think that's going to tell us an awful lot. About what to expect in uh, coming up in the summer, and to your point, like where the team sees itself, because to me, that's a move you make if, as you said, you think you're entering your your window of contention
1: this year, for sure. And and honestly, there's nothing else you could do alone that creates as much flexibility. I still don't expect it to happen. Yeah, I but would I'm bet against it. But I'm also not ruling it out. Right? Like I just think the buyout conversation, and I've said this a million times, and I'm going to keep saying it, especially. Uh, You know, probably with increasing urgency, 48 hours after the cup is awarded or June 15th, whatever comes later, as per the CBA. Uh Just that, you know, what would really shock me about the Canucks in the buyout window would be a buyout quickly. Right. If you're talking about a June 30 buyout, it feels to me like all options could be on the table depending on how the trade market um, unfolds uh, between, you know, now and, and draft day and then between draft day and and the first day of free agency.
0: Yeah, that's the key, right? Is because the draft is the twenty eighth and the twenty ninth, then the last day of the buyout window is the thirtieth, and then obviously free agency <laughs> opens on the first. So
1: you've gone through that
0: kind of artificial deadline of the of the draft where teams are all gathered and deals happen and you're just you're sitting on the eve of free agency and then you really know, okay, like, are we desperate here? Are we desperate enough to bite the bullet and do this deal?
1: Yeah. And I just would not be surprised at all given the organization's previous commentary about the matter given how they're positioned like i won't be surprised at all if we see an 11th hour buyout during this window no matter you know what alvin's intentions are as per his public commentary at the end of the season so that's the that's the logical one that jumps to mind for me
0: right if you think you're ready to contend this year you're buying out oel what are the other kind of obvious or maybe not so obvious moves that would flow from that assumption. The other dominoes or the other types of behavior you would expect to see if that's how the team views itself.
1: Well, and I think not trading 11th necessarily, mm-hmm. but being willing to trade something uh, and to I think, get
0: off an asset. I don't know if this is with you or is this with somebody who is filling in, but like the one that really stands out to me is the 2024 first round pick. right? Because you have 11. That's baked in. And you know how valuable 11 is, and it's in a deep draft class. But again, with this thought experiment, if you think you're ready to be a contender, a legit contender this year, you're also planning to be much better, right? You're not planning to be picking 11th again. You're planning to be picking in the twenties. That's where you think you're going to be. And if you convince yourself of that, it becomes a lot easier to part with that next year's first round pick. It's down the road. You want to make the playoffs anyways. So I wouldn't be so worried about trading 11 for instant help, but That would be the one that stands out to
1: me as the the next logical asset that you would try to trade to help your team right away. You know what's funny about how hockey teams sometimes view risk? Like, they don't view it the way normal businesses do sometimes, right? Mm -hmm. It's like you bring up or someone brings up in a hockey operations meeting like, hey, whoa, like "That's that's a pretty big bet. And the reaction isn't, hey, good point. It's, well, you don't believe in us? Right? Because that's the athletic mindset. Right? We can overcome. We can be the Miami Heat. Anything can happen. Mm. Right? And it's like, yeah, you you know, at least in terms of assessing risk, you're right. <laughs> Maybe build some protection in. So the insurance industry exists. So, you know, 2024, that's a really interesting one. That, to me, is the most negative place this could go if the organization truly is that gung-ho about how good they are, despite all evidence to the contrary. How how good they could be under Rick Tockett, anyway. It's just, and again, a lot of this, I think... One, I, I think they are pretty gung-ho about it, by the way. One of the things we, I think we often
0: underrate when we're trying to project what NHL teams are going to do are is just like the job security pressures of people in key positions. Mm. And trading the future pick, it's less risky. It's less likely to blow up in your face this year, right, than trading the pick eleven. And if you, If you view this, and I'm not saying that I think this is the situation necessarily. I'm more talking just in generalities here, but if you're a general manager of an NHL team, and you think, I need to make the playoffs to give myself a chance of retaining this job, well, I think that explains a lot of why teams are more willing to kind of downplay the risks of trading a future first-round pick, right? I mean, even, like, we've seen this, this is basically what the JT Miller trade was, Right like i'm we're going to trade a future one cuz we're going to get this player in and then we're going to be way better and it's not going to matter that we lost that first round pick and it ended up paying off because of the pandemic right they ended up making the playoffs and they went on the bubble run like just again from terms of like raw job security it paid off the objective was met with that first round pick now ended up losing his job a couple years after that anyways but that that's the logic of the deal and i like it wouldn't – I don't know. I don't want to say I think it's going to happen. But, again, if you're looking for ways to kind of inject some rocket fuel into improving this team, if that's what you want to do in the near term, that's the
1: asset that really stands out to me. Wow. I, I was going to say something like Niels Hoaglander, but um, you know, I-, I think it would be the height of folly. I'm not saying I think it should happen. I want to be very clear yeah. about that. It's just to have, to have handled the stretch run the way the Canucks did in the Bedard year and then to trade the 2024 first, presumably with some lottery protections, but nonetheless. You would think so. In the Macklin-Celebrini year. I mean, that's just such, that would be so at odds with what this market wants. <laughs>
0: it would be very canucks But pro- part of the problem is, like you mentioned Niels Hoaglander, again, and this is a thought experiment, right? We're doing this. Okay, but, but Hoaglander what, can help. Hoglander right can help right now. And also like, is that bringing you a real – is Hoglander bringing a real impact piece back for you for this year That uh, where the Oh, gap, no, 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 no. You know it's, what I
1: mean? I, I'm not saying that. I'm saying Hoaglander as a sweetener to get off a deal. Right. That's, and then you go spend the money in, in UFA. Correct. To
0: turn around to improve your team.
1: I just think outside I'm of not
0: endorsing it. Outside of the 2024 <laughs> first-round pick and your first-round pick this year, there's just not a lot of assets that have a ton of value that you can know if you're looking for ways to improve the team dramatically. Right. Like I, I I get what you're saying. You attach Hoaglander as a sweetener and maybe that opens up a little bit of money, but then you're still looking at, you know, signing a
1: a third line center. You might not
0: be that excited about right? versus a trade that could actually potentially move the needle for you with the 2024 pick.
1: For sure. Although maybe it's, you know, a a situation where, you know, Hoaglander's an RFA team like Chicago needs to spend some money. We've talked about them a lot. Mm -hmm. Is there like a fit where you get, you know, um, what's their defenseman, Murphy, back? The the right handed defenseman. Connor Murphy. Murphy. He's actually pretty good. I actually really like his game. His puck skills have improved a lot. Um, But you like trade Besser and Hoaglander for that guy. Right. And then Chicago takes a big gamble on Hoaglander, who's an RFA. Right. And they, they sign him to one of those term deals we're always talking about. Mm-hmm. Right. They try to re- realize like long term benefit of that. Plus, they have Hoaglander taking up a bunch of space. And if you're the Canucks, you've added a top four right handed defenseman to the roster. I, I mean, just a, just a template sort of deal of, of sort of the, the, the thing I'd look for in, in a Hoaglander package. I just, I really struggle to wrap my brain around. The draft pick but you're right I mean based on how this organization clearly values draft picks not a lot right um yeah you're probably right if they if they consider themselves a contender that 2024 first on the assumption that it's going to be in the 20s and who cares would seem to make sense and even the Connor Murphy
0: example you're spelling out there I mean I guess it depends what you think of Connor Murphy but I don't know if you would look at that and say, like, oh, that's a real needle mover for us. I mean, I guess he's a top four guy, so it
1: is, and they need they need an addition. Oh, it's definitely not. I mean, he's not but, as good a player as Besser, even.
0: But that's the thing, right? So to me, that's not necessarily like I wouldn't characterize that as a we're going all in because we think we're a contender this year. Or we're really, we're being aggressive, really aggressive, because we think we're a contender. Like to me, that's like shuffling deck chairs a little bit. You know <laughs> what I mean? Like that's like Besser out for a guy who's not quite as good, but makes a little less, and maybe it'll help us a little bit because he fills a need. That's more the th- type of thing I would expect to see this year, rather than like the true aggressive, yeah. more aggressive moves. Right? Fair enough.
1: So that you're saying that's not that's aggressive enough. That's like a, tier, for that's the like a down. We're <laughs> from making. this level of aggression. Got it. Okay. Interesting. Um, yeah. And then how how about the Chicago trade down concept on the tip of everyone's tongue in this market mm-hmm. over the course of the past couple of weeks? How would that fit? Would that be a win now move? Like Would you see a team do that if they considered themselves a contender? It's sort of a middle one. It could
0: mean multiple different things, I think. Because one of the reasons I have not been negative against that proposed deal is I actually don't mind the idea of getting a couple of kicks at the can in the top, like getting that extra second round pick because they need to fill out their pipeline in a big way. And yes, you want to hit a home run at 11, and I understand that. But for a team in, like in the position with the Canu- like the Canucks, like they also just need to be making way more picks, and ideally way more picks in the top two rounds. So that objective, right? Of hey, we want to have more picks than we currently have. That doesn't feel like an all-in type of thing to me. The we're going to trade down, and as part of that, attach Connor Garland's contract or Brock Besser's contract, and then spend around turn around and spend that money. That feels like more of an aggressive thing. But I think it kind of averages out to a. Uh, again, this is the type of moves we're talking about, right? It accomplishes some different things, none perfectly, but it's kind of that middle route where you mm. can say, hey, we're getting an extra draft pick and we're opening up cap space and we're trying to improve our team for this year. It's it's kind of that type of thing where it th- tries to thread that needle rather than being all in on one direction or the other.
1: Yeah, I th- uh, fair enough. The So in terms of assuming that this team is a contender, would you expect them to then be off of the age gap trade strategy? I would expect to see less of that. I think, I think, like, I don't like, like you, you think we're done? Like,
0: if depending on where they think they are, but like, are we going to see a fifth for Jacks Danica again, you know, or something like that? I would be a little surprised. It feels like more like, if you think you're a contender, you're less interested in, oh, hey, you know, 23-year-old who hasn't really worked out with his current organization, but we think there might be something there, and you're more interested in, we know
1: this guy can fill this role for us, right? We know this guy can be on our PK and help us, and we need the help right there. If you're in this assumption mode, are you is the story you're telling internally that, like, now that we've brought in Stanika and Kratsov didn't work out, but it was worth the shot, mm-hmm. and Ethan Bear, what a find... And Riley Stillman, at least, we got an asset for. Mm-hmm. And Niels Amon and Dakota Joshua and Johansson's coming over, and those are all guys we've added already. And that's that's better than a draft class. That's why we can afford to lose picks for Hronik, who and I guess Philip Heronik, too. We fixed our blue line with this age mm-hmm. gap strategy. Is that the story? Probably, right?
0: Yeah. Like, we've done the major lift. And it is telling. How much time were we spending talking about third line center and not the blue line now, right? And I think... You know, I know Sats reported third line center is a priority, but they also want to add a defenseman. I'm not saying it's off the radar completely, but it definitely, for the first time in a long time, it's not like the main focus of how do we, how do, how does the Canucks improve?
1: Well, you know what I mean? Uh, yeah, but it wasn't the main focus for them last offseason either. Yeah, but it was the main focus for a lot of <laughs>
0: for people for watching and talking like, about the team.
1: But they got such a good winger. <laughs> But you know what I mean. So I do You wonder know that's if- how this is turning out this summer too, right? Where they're gonna be like, and our big center Barbshev, and everyone's gonna be like, it's a winger. It's another one. <laughs> I do wonder if
0: they look at it as not that we've necessarily quote unquote solved it, but we made our big splash on the blue line. That's Philip Ronick. <laughs> and so now we gotta make our big splash down the middle at third line center.
1: Has the winger thing become such a meme that it impacts who they take at eleven? That's a fascinating question. I would love to know that. Me too.
0: It might. It might. And I don't even know if it's so much that it's because of the meme or just because the incredible need at, <laughs> at center and defense in the organization, right? Like, the meme is part of it, but you also just looking sitting down and looking at it, you're like, wow, we don't have a lot of defensemen or centers in the pipeline. That's a problem. We've yeah. spent all of our first and second round picks in the last, like, five
1: years on wingers. Yep. It's wild. Except for the ones that we use to trade to acquire defensemen. Yeah. Yeah, I mean I'm just fascinated to see if there's like a winger overreaction. Where like we don't see the club draft a single winger or like something like that. I'm I'm really gonna be interested to see how that plays out. I do feel like it would really
0: have to be somebody falling in a big way, right? Oh, like it would of have course. to be Mitchkov or Benson but, at eleven. But,
1: but that's the benefit or Leonard. But that's the benefit of 11. Yep. Like At 11, what you're hoping for is that a couple of teams reach for defensemen. Right? Like if uh, Sandine Palika, or uh, Willander, right? Reinbacher mm-hmm. is assured now. Mm-hmm. Sneak into that top 10. Then does a Leonard, Benson, Michkov fall? Mm-hmm. Yeah, p- possible, for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the I value of the pick.
0: I get it. I, I do think there's, I don't know, I like I think there's you still have a really good chance of getting a good player at 19 as well, and uh, like there'll probably be some of the defensemen in that second tier still on the board. Um, I don't know about that. Now the question becomes
1: also like, do you? Uh, I think I think if you're open to drafting a winger, 19 is way better, <laughs> right? Like if you're if you're Dead set on a center defenseman, you got to stay at 11. Well, I did have to laugh
0: because uh, Corey Promen at the Athletic today had his big final draft yeah. rankings, and he does it all in tiers, which is really useful when we're talking about trading down, right? And he had one of the tiers as going from 11 to 20, which is, like, exactly what if, – if you believe that's true, that's exactly what you want in a scenario where you're trading down from 11 to 19, but, like, of those nine players uh, or 10 players, I think, like, Two or three of them were wingers or or defenders, or sorry, centers or defenders, and the rest were wingers. So it's like, yeah, you could get a really
1: good player, but there's a very, very good chance it's going to be a winger at 19. Corey's tiers are so fascinating because he's got Simashev, my guy, Mm -hmm. in the top 10, and then Benson, Willander, Leonard in a lower tier. Mm -hmm. Right? But like, I'll be stunned if Simashev goes before those players, even though. You know, certainly if Simashev goes ahead of Benson, I think that's an error. But I think Simashev would be a perfectly good t- uh, pick at eleven. So I'm fascinated to see Corey move him so aggressively up the board. That's a uh, that remains the inter- mo- one of the most interesting names to me. By yeah. the way, yeah. And I mean, as much as I
0: am open to the trade down idea, like sticking at eleven and taking Willander or no, no, or I don't like Simashev. No. You don't like
1: Willander? Simashev is the is the the. Other than Reinbacher, Simyshev's the only guy you could take in the top fifteen that won't have me be like, oh man, that's too hmm. bad. Interesting. I don't know. I don't know enough about the different the different defenseman prospects to be upset and idea. And to be clear, idea. I don't either. This is just me me based on what my guys I trust say, right? Like that's that's it. Will Anders right handed and at a strong tournament. Um but, you know, really pedestrian scoring profile at the J twenty level mm. in 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 his draft eligible season. That that for me is like You have to have a scout who gives you a really good answer for like, hey, why didn't this guy produce? Right. (laughs) Because that's not the profile of a guy worth a a top half of the first draft or first round pick, in my view. Uh, Yeah, we are a month
0: out, less than a month out at this point from the uh, first round of the NHL entry draft we we got to get uh, Bukla back on here, go go through some of these defensemen and centers. And, Most of that at some point here uh, this week to educate us a little bit uh, on this. Uh, 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. Uh, we were doing kind of a thought exercise. What would an all-in offseason look like for the Vancouver Canucks in the summer? If you have thoughts on that, hit us up at 650-650. We'll read some of them on the other side. Uh, final segment of the show coming up. It is Canucks Talk Sportsnet 650. Welcome back to Canucks Talk here on SportsNet 650. It's Jamie Dodd. It's Thomas Drance live from the Kintech Studio. 650, 650 is the Dunbar Lumber Text Line. Dunbar Lumber with three stores to serve you in Ladner on Bridge Street or Dunbar Lumber Express at Ladner Center or Arbutus in Vancouver online at Dumbarlumber.com. Uh And as I mentioned, the 650-650 Dunbar-Lumber text line, uh, lots of thoughts coming in about uh, our discussion about the draft, about what an all-in season would look like for the Canucks all-in off-season, and Brad Brad in Cloverdale says, what would an all-in summer look like for the Canucks? Like every other summer (laughs) for the last decade.
1: That's such a good take. I was about to say- I mean, you're not wrong! I'm so sick of covering all-in summers. Every summer is an all-in summer. In some way, it's it's felt like that a lot. There's been a lot of them. All-in summer resulting in nothing good. Right. I mean that's that's kind of the trend of the last few seasons. I guess the one exception would be the JT Miller summer, the summer they went and got Miller and then had a good season and Myers and had well, a Well, yeah. I was I was thinking even that was like an all in summer. It produced the, one thing.
0: The uh the bubble run. Sure. Yeah. So at least again you can say like, Okay, well at least that wasn't nothing and it, to be fair, it also gave you JT Miller on a very good contract, right? Which oh, could have yeah, been yeah. an asset to do more. Absolutely. Um but you, you really just go back and you look at it. You go through the years, right? Like even last year, you could say re-signing JT Miller kind of qualifies, checks that box for you, right? And you go down the list all the way back through, you know, the, the Beagle and Roussel summer. And there were a lot of all-in moves uh, made by this team. In the offseason. Uh, this text came in, Brandon in Vancouver. I feel like we're overrating the management group's ability to identify talent. Joshua was courted by many teams. Bear is a known commodity. The whole league wanted Kuzmenko. That's from Brandon in Vancouver. So you get credit,
1: though, in my mind. So let's list off those well, Let's go through them. Dakota because- Joshua, yep. two-year one-way. Yeah, They outbid the other teams to get him. So you get credit for recognizing the potential. There you get and credit spending for being willing
0: in. to spend more than other teams were, right? We're, we prioritize this guy because of our assessment of him, so we're going to do what we have to do to get him in, right? Ex- you're, exactly right. You're, you're rarely going to have a player who literally no, every other team thinks is bad. You know what I mean? No other team thought this guy could play in the NHL, but we did. That's probably not going to happen. It's going to be about how you prioritize
1: it, what you're willing to spend, all of those sorts of things. 100%. So... You know, I think that's. Um, you still get credit for that. Kuzmenko, you get credit for winning the Derby, right? There's <laughs> a lot of relationship building that goes into that. There was a lot of teams involved. You know, you had to pick a better restaurant than. Uh, what's the one they took him to in Edmonton? Uh, Joey's was it? <laughs>
0: <laughs> like it was something yeah, like
1: that. Yeah, you had to you had to aim a little higher than Joey's with your wine and dine. You had to be willing to pick up a tab somewhere nice. You know, like. He could have come and visited Vancouver, and they could have taken him to White Spot. Hey, that would have sold me. (laughs) Me too. (laughs) These burgers are amazing. (laughs) This tastes just like my childhood. coming right here. That would be his reaction if he was me. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, still, like, you get credit for not taking Kuzmenko to Popeye's. (laughs) Truly, you do get credit. I don't know why I'm minimizing this. I'm just trying to make fun of the Oilers. Yeah, which is great. Yeah. No problem here. The the Joey's, the Joey's wine and dine, though, is an all-timer. <laughs> it really is. My goodness. Um. By the way, how lucky is the NHL that the Edmonton Oilers power play didn't add Kuzmenko as an option at the net front?
0: <sighs> Although, I mean.
1: Would he have beat out Zach Hyman?
0: That's the thing. Da, da, da. It's like, I but don't know how much. I don't know how many more marginal returns you're getting on that power
1: play. Eventually, you need like a different look just for a game or I two. I guess.
0: But we're talking about like like what did their power play finish at? Like oh historically five percent. Or we're probably talking about like thirty-five versus like thirty six percent or but something. But I mean you, know?
1: you take you take what, a top five net front guy in the NHL on the power play, and if he gets hurt you sub in a top five net front guy on the power play in the NHL? Yeah. I mean I'm just saying that would have been silly. Um who else was mentioned in that? Uh Ethan Baer. Who again as so, he said is a known commodity. Now, the key there the key there, what really broke the deadlock for the Canucks over the team's Um, the other teams involved were was that they were willing to get the deal done relatively quickly with the Carolina Hurricanes retaining less to make it happen while taking back Patterson. Right. So because Patterson at the time was viewed as like a complete salary dump. Not just by the Carolina Hurricanes, by just about everybody. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, In so doing, like, I think the Carolina Hurricanes could have gotten a better return. They prioritized just ending the stalemate and getting the deal done. And Vancouver was there holding the bag at a price that Carolina liked, as opposed to the other teams that, you know, mostly contenders that were closer to the cap that to make it work needed the Carolina Hurricanes to retain more and... It was going to be like weeks more of grinding, and are we going to drag this out to that yeah. extent? I think that was where the, Can- the Canucks were able to facilitate a deal on terms that Carolina was willing to accept quickly. Um, again, you get credit there for being in the mix and being a little bit less fl- inflexible than some of the other teams potentially acquiring them. So- yeah, it's a similar situation to the Dakota Joshua
0: thing, right? Where there's other teams interested, we're willing to prioritize it more such that we end up getting the player and you know the other thing I will say and Ethan Bear I think is a good example of this is there's always contingent scenarios which explain why you get the player right and I don't even think of you know Eli and going to Seattle on waivers right and making it through a ton of teams and not being claimed on waivers part of that is talent evaluation and scouting and understanding okay how he fits with our team and how his abilities can help us but part of it is also well he has a he has money on his deal for next year and in a flat cap not a lot of teams want to take that we're willing to take it so it's not necessarily that our that Seattle's evaluation process was miles better than everyone else it's that they evaluated the player correctly and they had the ability they had the cap space they had the flexibility to make it happen right and like that's i, I look at that the Ethan Bear example is a similar one yeah a lot of teams probably had similar ideas about Ethan Bear the Canucks were willing to do what was necessary uh, to actually make it happen, so it, it's never just about talent evaluation. That's obviously incredibly important, but it's all these other things that go into you actually getting a player uh, or not when it comes down to it. Right? Again, if you're if your measuring stick for really good talent evaluation is nobody else thought this player was good, there's not a lot of guys in the league like that. No, that
1: doesn't happen. No, no, winning, winning. You have to you 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 don't get credit for the trades you almost make. Yeah. Right. Like the Canucks were in on John Marino. Right. Mm-hmm. but they didn't have the type of equity that the devils did to complete that deal. Do we give them credit for that? I don't No, You know, like I, I'm we're, so if I'm not giving them credit for that, I'm not taking credit away from them because 23 teams bid on Kuzmenko or whatever. So look, I, I don't actually think that Texter's point is all unfair. Well, I will say you don't want to, you want, you don't want to turn it into like a superpower that can never fail. You no. know what I mean? <laughs> like no. there are going to be hits and misses, right? You got to keep it in perspective. hundred percent. and and but you know, you look through Amon, Joshua, Kuzmenko, um you know i I don't even throw bear in that same mix because the acquisition cost i think like the fifth isn't the problem. The problem is is that he's expensive right away, and he was to be fair to the textures point he was a more established n h l quantity n h l player totally that
0: at that point right but
1: also but also you know you pay a fifth like the bear acquisition has to fit within the context of like you, you know and and so does the jettisoning the hamminck and Dickinson deals mm-hmm. so in in Turning Dickinson and Hammonick's bad contracts into Bear, Dermot, Stillman. Was there anyone else in that mix? I don't think St- so. Stadnica. yeah. You know, the club spent a first, a second, a third. Right? I guess I guess if we're throwing in Hamonick's deal, we can just exclude the third because yeah. it came in and out. Mm-hmm. But a first a second, a fifth, DiPietro, Pietro, and Myronberg. Right? It's like that's a Fair, fairly large acquisition cost to get Ethan Bear, right? Like very likely you're looking at one player at a really high expense, mm-hmm. over uh, you know, and and a and a few million of cap relief that won't matter after next season, like short term cap relief that, at least to this point, has only resulted in the Canucks having a bottom eleven finish. I mean, that's not that's not great work. Like that's where sort of the for me the rubber meets the road. Like when they've made deals. Some hits, some misses with Kratzov. a deal I like. The The zero acquisition cost swings, I think they've done really well. The age gap, talent ID stuff, like if we're holding up Bear as an exemplar of a successful strategy, I think we're out to lunch. We're missing the forest for the trees. They have had a good outcome through a bunch of deals that as a trend line all point to bad strategy and even bears success is a double-edged sword because the club gave him the opportunity to up his arbitration leverage and he becomes expensive right away for his contributions in a season in which the Canucks went nowhere. Like that's not, that's not an uncomplicated win. It's like there's one in three good hockey trades and the overall strategy I think is worth looking at and being like, what? That's terrible. And I think it's why, again, when you're evaluating a front office, it's about
0: more than just talent evaluation. Totally. Right? It's more,
1: more than their ability to well, evaluate good players. So I want to talk about this actually in the context of, um, of Kyle Dubas, right? Because this is one thing that I think gets missed when people evaluate managers, management teams, NHL organizations. Mm-hmm. The majority – Of a general manager's job, and this is something that Dave Nones touched on with us a fair bit. Like, yes, there's a lot of time spent on the phone, Uh hobnobbing, being a social butterfly, right? Um, Grinding away on on potential deals. There's having the network. There's making the trades. There's drafting. As much as that actually, you know, as much credit actually should rebound to a GM, which isn't much, in my opinion. Uh, You know, running a department, on and on what about the day-to-day management, right? Like this, the the bulk of a general manager's time is spent actually just like managing the day-to-day operations of a hockey club. And one thing I don't think people understand in discussing Dubis is that doing it in Toronto and almost never having the Seams show mm. is like a really remarkable accomplishment. When you look at the first 18 months of this management group in Vancouver and you think about all of the controversies, the medical staff stuff, the um, HRC complaint, uh, the, you know, redesign of the locker room that effectively displaced the team for the duration of of training camp last summer, uh, the Bruce Boudreau thing, and the way that that came to a head and was managed, um, you know, the community outreach the media relationship side right like you you think about all of the day-to-day operations of this hockey team and how miserable this season seemed to be from the outside looking in and honestly from the outside looking out too, or inside looking out too right like very much so the tones on un- in which this team was reported on matched the feeling around the t- club for the duration of the season like I don't think we give managers enough credit for just like managing the day to day well mm-hmm. nor do I think the extent to which that's been a, a real concern over this management group's first 18 months has been given enough thought uh, oxygen we haven't spent enough time talking about it it's like the really simple stuff can you hold off season trainings without getting fined right can you manage returns from injury in a way that doesn't result in a player potentially having a career-ending infection. Like, can you fire a coach without debasing yourself and creating a a, a media circus? Right? Like, on on the really routine elements, I I, I think it's fair to say that this organization is, or this new front office group, has left a lot to be desired in a way that, you know, I I continue to find deeply concerning as we project out what to expect this offseason. Yeah, I mean, it's a fair point.
0: It was a really, really weird year. Like, there's no other way around it. There was a lot of things that happened that you would prefer not to happen. And I mean, as much as we talk about the on ice aspirations for this team, like, don't, isn't, priority number one in some ways just having a quiet season right having a a buy the book season that is not eventful so you're not you know the lead on Jeff Merrick's show almost every day for for a span of months right so you're on the back burner from a from a league perspective for a while because things are just humming along like I think that's a huge part of what you have to be aiming for uh going in to next season uh Nelson and Colonna says you can't give credit when the team pays more for these players I mean that's I, I understand what you're saying there right like but again, it's all tied together. If you are willing to, if you're willing to give the most security to Dakota Joshua, and it turns out to be right, and he turns out to live up to that contract and be a positive asset for you, then you can give the team credit for being willing to outspend everyone else, right? So, it all ties in. You're, you're nothing you do happens in a vacuum where you can say, that was just great player evaluation, or just horrible player evaluation. It all ties together, and yeah, I I hear what you're saying. That if you go and you're willing to spend the most, yeah, you're going to get players. But then you run into trouble too. You're and it's a it's a flat cap league or you it's know, a hard cap league.
1: But it's also you're judged on your bet. You know, you, you're. If you're willing to spend more, and the player provides surplus exactly. value, exactly, it's that's like well,
0: you do get credit for spending more. That's a good you bet. You recognized you had the best read on what the value of that asset was, on 100%. the value of
1: that player, and you get credit for that.
0: Hundred percent. If you spend, if you outbid everyone and it blows up in your face,
1: then no, you don't get credit. Well, for Well, especially it. because the more you spend, the bigger the bet has to pay off. Right. So it's yes. like, so it's like it's easy to sit, say someone like, wow, I can't believe you bet fifty dollars on that six hundred to one future. It's like, yeah, you're right. That was stupid when it loses. <laughs> but if it hits, you're a genius, right? I mean, it's it's the same thing. It's the same logic. Uh, Brandon in Vancouver texts back in. He says, I guess I'm thinking in terms of the type of
0: luck this team needs to make meaningful improvement and actually become a playoff contender, whether in the draft or a low-cost UFA, they need to get two to three Big hits, and he points to examples like Valeriy Chushkin or John Marino, etc. He says winning the acquisition battle is great, but the moves feel like floor raisers, not ceiling raisers. I think that's a fair point, right? Like, let's keep it in perspective. We're talking about Dakota Joshua, we're talking about Neil Amon. Yeah, those are valuable pieces to have in your organization, but they're not going to be needle movers that push you towards the Stanley Cup.
1: I, I think that's a very fair point. Uh, absolutely uh, fair
0: point. Yeah, I um, mean, from Brandon, it's not
1: like the Canucks have cleaned up the way that Florida did with Verhage, Lomberg... Um, Duclair, Wenberg, and Gustav Forsling off waivers in one offseason, mm-hmm. right? Like that's a five month stretch that builds the depth of a championship team. <laughs> I mean, that's that's cleaning up, yeah. Right? Like the Canucks haven't shown, and and you know, you go further than that. Guys like Mark Stahl in the top four for cheap, right? That the the way that that team has gone about like mining the absolute last of Joe Thornton and Eric Stahl's hockey value, mm-hmm. you know. Um, the way that they've been able to consistently churn through like young high pedigree puck moving defensemen on the waiver wire to identify two that can play on a roster that actually made it to the Stanley Cup final. Yeah. I mean, that's like if you're talking about teams that crush it evaluating depth talent, right? I think you, you gotta talk about Toronto. You gotta talk about Florida, I think you gotta talk about Colorado. Mm-hmm. Um and I think there's, uh, you know, a bunch of teams that deserve mention before you get back to the Canucks. Pittsburgh, obviously, has continued to do a really good job. Tampa, Minnes- Tampa you think, back to the Coleman, Goodrow, and then even the Nick Paul acquisition. Like, I think they've done a really good job
0: of that as well. Tampa,
1: Tampa's been great at it, Even, and, but they're willing to pay, like, yeah. such a high price to acquire those guys. Uh, but, I mean, I, I, I would actually throw in Minnesota, too, right? Like, you think about Hartman, mm-hmm. right? You think about Sam Steele. Like, Sam Steele. S-T-E-A-L, more like it. <laughs> not not as good as do no harm. <laughs> <laughs> but, but you think about Brandon DeHame, right? And, uh-huh. then, and then also guys like John Merrill on the back end worked out really well for them. Jacob Middleton was like a, a pretty low end. Like this is one thing I think Bill Guerin's one of the best in the league at. Philip Gustafson was like the throw-in of the Cam Talbot trade and significantly yep. outperformed Cam Talbot <laughs> and the and the Wild got paid for it. I mean you only get so much credit for stealing Dorian's lunch money but nonetheless um you know that to me is a team that's operating on a totally different level when we talk about this than what we've seen in Vancouver so far and I say that while also giving them credit cuz I do think they've been meaningfully um, like I think they've had some meaningful hits there. Mm-hmm. Kuzmenko would be the fl- the ceiling raiser, by the way. That's the one that you're hoping turns into that top of the lineup player, right? And that, and he was this the year. kind of found money top of the lineup. Like he guy. he did it yep. this year, right? So it's just can he sustain it remains an open question. But nonetheless, I think that qualifies as a totally different um, echelon oh, 100%. Of impact move than the others. Uh, just a few more minutes here left in the
0: show. This text comes in, just getting back in some of the draft talk, and he says, hey, guys, would you be able to talk about the tiers of centers available in the draft? I do find it interesting that so much of the conversation around the Canucks sitting there with number 11, potentially trading down to 19, revolves around the defensemen who they might be able to get when center, even with Ratu, still remains just a glaring, glaring need down the middle in uh, you know in their prospect pipeline. So I do find it kind of interesting that it's been all about, well, which, which defenseman is, uh, you know, worth the, the top 11 pick? Which defenseman would still be there at top 19? Like, the need for center to me is still at least as great as the need on the blue line. And I do think it's an interesting conversation. Now, just this is just – we'll just use uh, your colleague Corey Promin's tiers here uh, that he published today at The Athletic. And obviously you've got the big names up top, right? Bedard, Fantilli, Carlson, Smith all at least have a chance to play down the middle at the NHL level. Then there's a bit of a gap, right? And based on the kind of consensus that I've seen in that 5 to 10 range, maybe the only center that's going to go off the board is Dalibor Dvorsky, probably not making it to the Canucks at 11, I think it's pretty safe to say.
1: I uh, I I would be I think Dvorsky is going to go really high.
0: And then you're into there's a there's a drop kind of from Dvorsky to whoever the next center is going to be. And it, I think you could say those next kind of couple of tiers of players extend probably almost into the second round. There will be guys available. And it really just starts to depend on who your scouts like, what who you like as a prospect. But after that point, there's not necessarily a center that jumps off the page and, and I say like, oh yeah, he'd be a really good pick at 11. Nate Danielson. But even that, I don't know if there's the upside
1: there to really be excited about it at 11. Um I I think there's a player there to be excited about for sure. I think the thing with Danielson is a little bit of the Bo Horvat model where offensively anyway at least at this point in his in his hockey playing career plays more like a winger Mm. you know and and by that I mean not uh, not a distribution player a little bit more reliant on his speed and off the rush but like big body super fast uh good shot like some skill level to his game but not maybe that like in zone level of of dynamism you'd ideally like from a guy you're projecting as a as As a top six center yeah um type center but but I mean I think he's good there's some people who think players like Hanzik can play the can play center. And if Hanzik can play center, that's a really interesting one. But it, it, always, didn't. it always just – I have a rule where if I'm
0: looking at a draft guide and it's like it, the position is like center slash left wing, it's just like, oh, you're a left winger. Left wing, yeah. You're a left winger. Uh, that's, I what mean, it, that's, how, that's how it plays out like 95% of the time. Honestly,
1: honestly, even a player like Danielson may end up being like a rugged, you know, checking winger by the time they're in the NHL. Um you know, Brayden Jaeger would be sort of the more dynamic option. That's like a real home run cut if you take him at 11. Mm-hmm. Struggled with consistency this season. Looked like a bit of a passenger on that line with uh, jaeger Furcus, but um, clearly got a great shot. Edstrom is sort of like the classic, like, try-hard two-way guy. And then Oliver Moore's got the speed, but some concerns about limitations in terms of... The skill. Yeah, yeah, the overall skill.
0: Yeah, it, and and again, like... Then you're in, after that especially, then you're into the well, tier of... no,
1: but I think guys like Otto Stenberg could absolutely be a consideration for some teams as high as 15. Like, I I, I could see that, that But happening. what I mean is, again, like, there's a
0: huge... It's not that they're not, like, worth, quote-unquote worth, like, a top 15 pick yeah, or a 15 to 20 pick. It's just that there's probably, like, 10 guys that you could say that about, and they can't all go between 15 and 20. You well, know what I mean? You're into that part of the draft.
1: The other guy I'd shout out, and and... You know, Corey's way lower on him than I am. But, like, Riley Height from Prince George, I think, is a really good player. Mm. Like, I, th- I think he's absolutely worthy of a top 20 pick. Um, So, you know, I, I do think there's more center options than, like, than, you know, Cor- Corey's broken down a really good list. And the best part about Corey is he's the most plugged in, honestly. Like, he was the guy who had um, the draft changing at the top. By far the fastest. Yeah. People were making fun of his mock draft, and then he almost nailed it, except he had the order of the defenseman wrong. But like he had the shape of the draft right. When it, so Corey rocks for this. But in building his own board, Corey, uh, then there's a few other draft analysts who are really good about it. No hurting in this list. This is a unvarnished individual opinion. So the fact that I disagree with it is actually what makes it valuable because Corey knows his stuff, and he's expressing his view in a really stubborn way and the sort of stubborn way that if you go and read this piece at the athletic, you'll get full value for the exercise.
0: We will keep up the draft conversation throughout the week. Thanks for listening. Uh, it is Canuck stock here on sports 650.